The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So here we are at Porn Part 2. And I'd say the subtitle of this episode is Porn the Dark Side. It's Mm. kind of a little heavy today. And, you know, I will say we tend to spend more time discussing the dark side of things on Dear Sugar Radio. Right. And here's why. Because people write to us with their problems. Yes. Listeners don't write to us when things are going swimmingly. Okay. You know, it's it's the things that cause them pain or anxiety or doubt. And I want to just say I think that's worth acknowledging at the outset of today's episode Mm -hmm. by probing into the difficulties that, that many of our listeners are grappling with when it comes to porn use. We are in no way saying that porn use is inherently bad. In fact, as we all noted uh, last week when we talked to Wendy Maltz, it isn't. Uh, It can be different things to different people. A lot of people use porn in ways that do not detract from their real-life erotic relationships. Sometimes they use it in ways that might even contribute to their relationships. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly worth mentioning that when we've discussed pornography in these two episodes, it's been heteronormative. It's been usually women writing about concerns with their boyfriends or, or, or partners' use, right? Right, or the men writing to us. That's right. You know, and I think that that's really worth noting. One of uh, the big conversations that has gone on uh, in the feminist movement, I know I've certainly had it over and over again over the last 20 or 30 years, is really um, the, the different meanings of pornography in a patriarchy and the different meanings of pornography in a heterosexual or heteronormative relationship. Some of the things that a girlfriend who has a girlfriend is going to be threatened by different things than a girlfriend who has a boyfriend are going to be threatened by. There are different, we have different relationships to, you know, sexuality that's expressed outside that kind of heteronormative monogamy. Right. Steve, have you ever watched feminist porn? I don't know. You know, they don't come with those labels that say, in this box is feminist porn. But I will tell you (laughs) that when a female partner of mine is able to choose what we're going to watch, it is a different kind of porn experience. It's much Mm -hmm. more, the story is more elaborate and more important, um, the kind of sexual acts that happen, and the general dynamic. I think that's the main thing is I know demonstrably when I'm watching it, that it came from a set of desires that are not exclusively male. They're they're female, and they represent a different take on these various sexual acts and the relationship between the partners. Am I ready to call that feminist porn? I don't know. Well, you know, my new thing is I'm going to go find feminist porn because I know it exists, and I want to see it, damn it. <laughs> I have a feeling that many of our listeners will send you links, if not films. Please do. Please do. You know, when I said in episode one, the thing that I feel most about pornography is that I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> and that's because there I feel a range of things. Yeah. You know, I'm a I'm a let's be honest about sex, you know, feminist. And I alternately champion and oppose the things that pornography does. Right. You know, I love that 
there is porn that might open people up to their sexual desires and their sexual fantasies in ways that are really cool. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, hey, look what it did with me and the pool boy. Yeah, you know, who but, can forget? I mean, really. <laughs> it's also, you know, it's also true. So that's the champion part of me. It's also right. true, and this can't be denied, that, that there are real people who are involved in the sex industry who are hurt by it right. and who, um, you know, there are really uh, misogynistic strands, you know, in a lot of pornography, which I, as a feminist, find deeply problematic. And so what I want to say, really, as we begin this discussion, is that I I really am still that same person who's wondering all these things. It's not about coming to the final answer or making a judgment about what pornography is. It's not about that for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important probably also to say that, you know, certainly we recognize that there are people who invest a certain amount of energy trying to figure out whether you can become addicted to porn and so forth. I'm not interested in that question. That's a sort of clinical question that I'm uncons- we're concerned with when people are writing us letters saying in their own relationships that they're troubled by either their use or their partner's use of pornography. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that the way we think and talk about porn does have to really change with the times. And some of that idea of like, no, no, it, it's not an addiction is rooted in, the, you know, really the kind of fear that these the, that these really, you know, re- the religious right has weighed in so significantly on porn. They classify, many of them, all porn use as problematic and shameful. And, and you know, those ideas are steeped in beliefs and morals that, we, you know, that you and I don't have. And, you know, I think most people who listen to our show would say we're pretty sex positive. We're pretty open about what are people doing? Right. What are people struggling with? Right. And it is true. Most professionals in the field do not classify porn addiction as a mental disorder. And I think that that's still in flux, too. The, when I was doing that research, what I found is some people say, well, it is like a gambling addiction or it is like this. Or, and other people would say, no, no, it's a different thing. But one thing that all of these doctors and researchers agree on, and, and certainly I think you and I agree on, is it, it is, whether we it's an addiction or not, whether it's a classifiable med- mental disorder or not, it does become a problem in a certain percentage of people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, people who start to use it excessively, who feel that they are using it in some ways to distance themselves from from others or who, who can't, you know, um, have erotic relationships, or people who are partners with somebody who's using it excessively. Right. Um, and that's in some way impacted their intimacy. You know, that's where we're really talking today. And we're going to have some help talking about this issue because it's something that, frankly, I don't have any first-hand experience with. And, and it sounds like you, you know, you do use pornography sometimes, but it's it, at least, you know, in any grand way hasn't become a, a problem in mm-hmm. your life. We're going to talk to Noah Church, who has had a problem with it in the past. He started using porn when he was nine years old. Okay, that scares me. I want to ask him about that. Yes, as that's precocious porn of, use. That's right. My daughter's about to turn 11. My son is 12. He struggled with porn addiction until he quit using porn at the age of 24. He's the author of the book Whack, Addicted to Internet Porn, and he runs the website addictedtointernetporn.com. And again, I'll say, when we use that word porn addiction on today's episode, we're not suggesting it's an official mental disorder. Mm -hmm. We're suggesting that porn can be a difficult experience for people who use it excessively. And this is the way that we're using that terminology. So Noah just happens to be here in the studio with us today. Welcome to Dear Sugar Radio, Noah. Welcome, Noah. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm so, you know, we get so many letters about this topic. So we're really excited to have you here. 
So where do we begin? I mean, tell us well, your yeah. story. Yeah, let's begin it in age nine. I mean, what's this about age nine? I, I have to say, like, mm. I'm a, I've always been really open and honest with my kids about sex, but I'm shocked that at nine you started using porn. How? I don't is, blame you for that. <laughs> how did that happen? And is that normal, do you think? Well, for me, I just had the idea one day. Hey, I like looking at pretty girls. Maybe there are some pictures online. I'll go to hmm. Google and search for pictures of pretty ladies. And I liked what I saw. So I kept looking at it whenever I had the chance, whenever my parents were in the other room or I had a little bit of time home alone. And it just continued on from there. It got worse when I got a computer in my own room at age, I don't know, 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And I was using consistently all throughout my adolescence and my teenage years. And looking back now, I can see that it created a lot of problems in my life. Oh, excuse me, what does consistently mean? So it wasn't necessarily every day, mm-hmm. but several times a week for anywhere from a half an hour to several hours in an evening. Mm-hmm. And there are people out there who use a lot more and people out there who use a lot less. But for me, the content kept escalating to more extreme stuff. You know, mm-hmm. at first it was just pictures, not even pornographic in nature, just of sexy ladies. And that's what I like to look at. But the amount of content available on the internet, and you might not realize this if you haven't explored it yourself, is vast and unlimited and free these days. And this was 15 years ago. It's a lot worse now. But I was exposed to things like bestiality porn or incest porn by the time I was 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's happening as you're doing that, because it's no longer about just trying to relieve a sexual desire. What's going on when you're browsing around for that long? Right. Well, Internet porn is very different from any sort of media or stimulation that we've seen before. It's not like VHS tapes or going to a movie theater where you watch an adult movie because it's unlimited content accessible as soon as you want it. So it became more about the novelty of what I was looking at and always seeking something new than it was just about reaching orgasm. I would delay orgasm just to keep going and going and going. And that's called edging, and it can be indicative of more problematic relationship to porn. At the age of 18, I had my first long-term girlfriend, and we felt like we were in love. We were very attracted to each other. We decided to have sex. But when it came time where she was naked before me in the bed, And I was very attracted to her uh, consciously, but on a physical level, I just wasn't aroused, and I had no idea why. And no matter how many times we tried, and no matter how many different ways or in different situations and tried to get comfortable with it, it just didn't work. Wow. So what do you think that was? At 18? Well, at the time, I had no idea. I I searched for answers, like on Google. You really didn't know. You were like, what's going (laughs) on? Young guy erection problems, what's going on here? Ah. And what I found was that if it's not an organic problem, like a vascular issue, and I knew that wasn't it, because I could get hard, no problem for porn, right. and reach orgasm, no problem, Yeah. then it must be performance anxiety. Like I was stressed out or nervous about it being my first time, and that was getting in the way. Uh-huh. And that didn't feel right, because it felt I did feel very anxious, but that came after failing multiple times, right. because it was so traumatizing for me, I didn't know. And for her too, I bet. I bet so. And I was ashamed of it because I felt broken sexually. So I didn't, I wasn't able to talk to her really openly about it. And it ended up leading to the end of that relationship. Wow. But do you think, so this is something I've heard Mm -hmm. a lot. 
you know, and one of the things I have to say as a woman, a lot of women feel jealous of their male partners using porn because they feel like, listen, I can't meet that standard. Yeah. You know, I'm a 48 year old woman who's given birth to two kids. And, you know, like, I'm not going to I don't have a porn star body like my mm-hmm. my husband and I have a sexual attraction to each other, but it's not necessarily based on like you have the perfect porn bod, you know, and and I'm curious about that. Like, is that what was going on for you that you had seen such a sort of exaggerated ideal of the female form? This is a very common misconception, especially among partners. I hear from women all the time. Like, Why aren't I enough? Aren't I attractive? Like mm-hmm. he married me. Why isn't he yeah. sexually attracted to me? And it's just not a fair competition. It's a real live woman, one woman, competing against a type of stimulus that's just so much more than our brains actually evolved to handle. It's instant access to dozens or hundreds of attractive mates. I mean, you can sit down and watch uh, 20 different videos and 20 different tabs or compilation videos, which splices dozens of all the best moments from dozens of different scenes together. Mm -hmm. And it's just a type of stimulation that we become conditioned to as we use it consistently over years to the point where our conditioning for real people and the cues that come with real sex and real intimacy, like the scent of a lover or the sound of her voice, that's just not what we're wired to anymore. We're wired to clicking to new uh, websites. We're wired to being at home alone in front of a computer. And that's what starts to arouse us. And for me, that was the case. And over the next six years, I was with many different women, but I never successfully had sex or reached orgasm with a woman. Oh my goodness. Until I was 24, there was a moment when I realized I had to face this. I had to find out what was going on one way or the other. So I searched for answers again. And this time what I found was completely different. I found that there were thousands of other people out there who had lost their ability to have sex, real sex with real people. And what they all had in common was a history of years of internet porn use. Mm. And there were people out there putting their faces publicly, like uh, Gabe Deem of RebootNation.org, who was telling his story of how he had to quit porn to get his erections back, and it took him nine months to recover. Mm. And the TED Talk, The Great Porn Experiment by Gary Wilson, that was really my light bulb moment where I realized, wow, pornography has really fucked me up. And it made it impossible for me to have the type of happy, fulfilling, mutually joyous relationships that I really wanted. Mm Mm-hmm. So I immediately quit, and it took me two and a half months before I was able to have sex for the first time with my current girlfriend, and then almost a year before I felt like I was back to where I would have been sexually. Like just a normal... Yeah, had I never been using porn. Yeah. So when you... I mean, first of all, I've, my, my head is spinning with questions, <laughs> and I just want to say, as I was just listening to you talk, thank you so much for being honest about your life, because yeah. I, I think that this is a huge problem for a whole lot of people. And as you know, it's one that's also steeped in so much shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, one of the very first definitions of porn is like the thing you do in secret, yeah. the thing that, that you hide. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of us, even back in the old fogey days when Steve and I were kids and we first found porn, <laughs> right. it was, you know, the magazine tucked under the bed or hidden in the little secret compartment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you say on online, it's like, you you know, you shut that computer the minute somebody else walks into the room, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this hidden thing. And here you are talking about it. So it's it's enormously helpful. When you decided to quit, how did you quit? Well, it's pretty simple. Stop looking at porn and stop touching your penis. But, you know, <laughs> so often when we think about addiction, right, yeah. people are like, I can't quit by myself. Mm. I mean, so, you know, sounds like you did cold turkey. 
but you know a lot of people. I mean, you've talked to a lot of people, presumably now, who feel they have a porn addiction. You know, have is it a diff, is it a hard thing to just stop cold turkey? What do how do people generally do this? Well, I say that it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And a lot of people are truly addicted, and I was too. And that means that even after we've quit, we can still have powerful cravings to go back, and these ingrained habits that push us toward returning to our previous behavior. For me, at that beginning point. I had been lost for so long without any hint of a solution that when I knew that porn was the issue, and I knew it from reading hundreds of people's stories that were so similar to my own, and learning about the brain science behind long-term addiction-related brain changes and how that can change how we react to stimuli, in this mm -hmm. case sexual stimuli, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel for the first time in a long time, and I was filled with so much hope for the future and so much pain over what I had caused myself that that was enough to keep me clean. For the first eight months, I didn't end up relapsing later that year. And why did, what happened when you relapsed? Well, I'd been with, for that first five or six months or so, I was with one woman, and she was the first woman that I really was able to feel like I was in love with. I had told that to women before, but with her, I realized I, didn't have, I hadn't actually felt that emotion before. That's because... Porn doesn't just cause porn-induced erectile dysfunction, which is what I had, but a myriad of other changes in how we perceive life. It makes us less interested in just daily activities and less stimulated by them. I realized that it had nulled my ambition and my ability to feel emotions. Hmm. Looking back for 12 years from the age of about 10 to 22, I didn't cry a single time because hmm. I was wow. emotionally numb by what I was, what I was experiencing. So... Once I had quit, I was finally able to feel love, and that was extremely transformative for me. But mm. that relationship didn't last. It, I think it was May 2014 that we broke up, and a few months later, and I was just you know in a darker place again. And in times of stress or depression or loneliness, people who are yeah. addicted are much mm -hmm. more vulnerable to relapse. So yeah. I, I chose to relapse in a moment of weakness, and it was amazing. As soon as I made that decision in my mind, I was rock hard, and I was literally shaking yeah. with adrenaline. Like, yeah. like, with the excitement that you were going to do it. Yeah. Not conscious excitement, though. Like I knew on a conscious level that this wasn't what I wanted, but on a primitive level, it was like yep. a heroin user who was seeing heroin for the first yeah. time after right. months being clean. So it's been two and a half years or so since you really stopped using porn yeah. and changed your life, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and how did this, you know, tell us about how you came to write your book and to found this website and, you know, how, how bringing, I guess, your story into the public mm -hmm. and helping others has been part of your, your journey too. Well, the book just started as a journal that I was writing for myself about my lifelong interaction with sexuality and pornography and my process of recovery. And I started sharing it online on some anonymous forums and a lot of guys and girls out there seemed to find it really helpful. And I realized, searching around, that there was no book out there that really dealt with this issue on a level that I would have needed when I was 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. So I just decided to write the book that I would have needed when I was younger, a book that encompasses the science behind how long-term porn use changes mm -hmm. our brains and alters our sexuality, a guide to recovery, a chronicle of my own story and other people's stories, and I decided to publish that and start speaking out. Wow. Well, let's, let's read let's, this letter yeah. and get your reaction. Yeah, I'm We'd so love curious. your help with this. We have more questions, but let's just get to this, this letter. Dear Sugars, 
I'm currently engaged to a wonderful guy. We laugh, we have adventures, we travel, we exercise, we cook. I love being with him and love so much about him. After we moved in together after a year of dating, a significant problem came up. He watched porn and masturbated almost every day. He had been doing this since he was 13, and he's now 35. He was quite open with me about it, and we talked about how it made me feel and how it affected our relationship. After a few months and finally an explanation for the mediocre sex we'd been having for the duration of the relationship, he admitted that he might have an addiction to porn. This made sense to me. I often caught him staring at other women, and he was often unable to sustain an erection through sex. I also felt that he was a bit emotionally disconnected, and our relationship was lacking intimacy. We saw a couple's counselor for a few months, which he says he hated every minute of, although I found it helpful. My fiancé said he would stop watching porn. We checked in almost every night, as I was his accountability person to help him through this. I thought he was doing well. Fast forward to now, a year later, lots of porn watching, girl staring, and arguments. He recently conceded that he had hit rock bottom when I found him lying about watching for the third time. He's now serious about getting better by reading a porn addiction book and listening to a podcast. He refuses to see a counselor as he doesn't believe that works. After the realization of this over a year ago, my self-confidence has plummeted. I have gained weight and I found myself back in the middle of an eating disorder that I worked three years to overcome prior to meeting him. I don't trust him and I feel angry, sad, and disappointed. I also feel unwanted and ugly and believe that he'd rather have sex with himself and the porn fantasy than with me. I have kept this all to myself. I haven't told anyone close to me, as I think it's such a personal problem. I know I need support, but I just don't know where to get it without severe judgment. I truly believe he wants to get better, but on his own terms. I've given him some firm boundaries about being actively engaged in recovery. So far, he's doing okay. Our wedding is coming up. I'm hesitant to go into a marriage with someone I don't trust. I want to feel wanted and sexy and have the confidence I had before finding out about his porn problem. I see him trying to get better and want to believe that he will succeed and it will help our intimacy. I've made lists about everything I love in this relationship and so much of it is great. After listening to your podcast with Esther Perel, I heard that a romantic relationship cannot be everything I may have been dreaming for the past 34 years. So therefore, I think that I can stay and be happy with the wonderful and amazing parts of our relationship. I love him, and I believe he loves me. I just feel this tug of unclarity or uncertainty about our future. Am I being weak by staying in this relationship? Should we postpone the wedding until we have a better foundation to enter marriage? How can I regain the confidence I've lost? Signed, Unsure. Wow. You know, my first thought I just want to say about that Esther Perel episode when we did that three-part series on infidelity, yeah. um, you know, there are some some crossovers here. I mean, she feels betrayed by her mm-hmm. partner having essentially a porn fantasy relationship. Yep. That's the third member of this, this relationship. But, you know, but I will say, you know, one of the things that Esther Perel, at least what I heard her saying, and I think that what we mm-hmm. were saying to all of those people who were writing to us, wasn't like, it's okay if your partner is unfaithful to you, you know, oh, well. Um, but rather we were saying, yeah, life is complicated and love is complicated and we are complicated. And so unsure what you're up against here is, you know, you've seen your partner for who for who he is. He, you know his secret. And um, it doesn't mean you have to accept his secret necessarily. It means this is something that you get to say, 
I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who has this, who does this sort of thing. And so, you know, we're, I, I don't want you, I just want to immediately amend that idea. Um, Esther Perel wasn't encouraging anyone to accept dishonesty or this kind of, you know, this, right. this sense of insecurity or unsafety that your partner has introduced via his porn use. Right. And, and we should say, not just the porn use, but the dishonesty around it and the unwillingness to, to recognize that it's really hurting his partner deeply, yes. that mm-hmm. she's anguished by it and is falling into unhealthy patterns that are born of feeling distrust and humiliation, frankly, by it. And I guess I want to ask Noah his reaction specifically because this is not a guy who, like we talked about last week, you know, I use porn a few times a week, but, you know, my wife sort of knows that and we still have an okay. This is somebody who's an habitual user. Mm -hmm. um, And I, I wondered whether you are reacting to kind of give us what his perspective on this is, his reluctance, for instance, to see a counselor to talk about it, the sense that she has that he's not just humiliating her by you know, wanting to look at porn so much, but also emotionally disconnected, as she describes it. Well, unsure. First, I want to assure you that you are very far from alone. This is incredibly common now. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marianne Layden is someone who speaks a lot about the trauma and betrayal felt by partners of porn addicts. And uh, there are also other resources like a book, Love You, Hate the Porn, by Mark Chamberlain and Jeff Stewer that deal specifically with recovery from porn addiction in a relationship and healing together. But you have to realize that porn has been influencing him since he was 13 years right. old. He was a child when he started his porn addiction. Mm-hmm. And that has had a grip on his life for a long time. And how where he is now, he might be serious about getting better now. And it's absolutely possible that he will quit using porn, find the resources and the information and the help he needs. And you'll have the man that you want him to be. But it's also a very significant possibility that he's not actually in that place. And the addicted part of him is lying to you and to himself to protect that behavior. That's absolutely a symptom of addiction is deception. Right. Right. It's a pretty classic scenario, right? To diminish it. Oh, I still love you. It's not, you know. It's interesting. She even says, when I was reading this letter... Just how many points that you had made in actually telling your own story. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she talks Emotional about this media, mediocre sex, the disconnect. And at the bottom of it, we could be talking about any, you know, other, other kinds of behavior. I want to fully believe everything that my future husband says, and I don't. So, mm-hmm. you know... She doesn't now, trust him. Right. And it's tough because, again, without getting in too deep into the particulars, she's 34 and been involved with this guy for a while. She's invested a lot. They're mm-hmm. planning a mm-hmm. life together. The stakes here are very high. And if you don't believe the person that you're with, especially about a behavior that you know sends you into an incredible, unhealthy shame spiral, and he's not able to hear that and say, okay, we just need to take care of this go to a counselor, do whatever it is that will allow him to start grappling with what has been in his life for much longer than she has. Mm -hmm. I don't don't think that's a person you you make that long good promise with. Well, I'm sure it sounds like your gut is telling you that he is not being fully honest with you. And there are signs here that that might be true. He's reading a book, he's listening to a podcast, but if he's not willing to have a fully open and honest dynamic with you conversationally, talking about this consistently 
that is a sign that he's still hiding things. Hmm. You know, one thing unsure that's always a clear sign to me um, if somebody has changed. So you know that he lied to you three times. And on that third time, you know, I hate to be cynical, but I, I do think that, that he might have sincerely felt he had hit bottom by the fact that you busted him that third time. But, you know, there's a very big difference between somebody who realizes they hit bottom when they've been busted and somebody who realizes that they've hit bottom mm. because they've actually had that awakening, that realization, that moment of truth that like Noah described in himself, he sees this TED talk and he's like, wow, that's me. I'm going to change my life. Nobody was standing over Noah saying, you need to change this or I'm going to leave you. And I do think that sometimes some, you know, a partner saying you must change um, or I'll leave you. I, I do think that that can be the inciting incident. But pretty quickly after that, the person who needs to change needs to be the engine of their own change. Yeah, and yes. here's what your partner would be doing if he had actually changed. He would be coming to you and talking to you about all the new realizations he's having, about the the things that have been hard for him, the things that have been enlightening to him as he's learning more about mm -hmm. this problem. He would be actually opening up that space of intimacy. I mean, look at your journey, Noah. You went from somebody who was so ashamed you wouldn't you've never talked to about this about yes. to anyone. To now you're just like telling the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason like that you're able to do that is you actually you owned it. You took responsibility for your life and decided it wasn't about shame. It was about, you know, just what happened. Yes. And that actually, you know, you, that you that part of you learning how to heal yourself was sharing that that journey with the world, you know. And I'm not saying I'm sure that your partner needs to do that, but he certainly needs to be sharing it with you. And the fact that he isn't it tells me that he's not he's not on that journey. <laughs> I agree 100% with what you're saying. And for me, when I realized that I wasn't alone, this was a common problem. And it was because of my early exposure to porn that it wasn't my fault. I was just a kid and I was curious. And that broke down that shame and allowed me yeah. to feel like I had companions in this and I could share this and I didn't have to be ashamed of it. Yeah. One thing that might help him get there, I don't know how educated he is about this process, but if he learns about the brain science and how he is physiologically affected by his porn habits, that could be an eye-opening moment. So if mm -hmm. you sit down and watch some videos about that together or just talk about that with some literature, that mm -hmm. could push things forward. Yeah, it's tough. You know, in some ways, he's forthcoming. He originally told her about it, but you don't feel reassured. And at the very least, I think you have to be able to say to this, you know, the, your fiancé, I don't feel reassured. You can't just bite your tongue. And I think it's also very dangerous. And I know if you want to speak to this, I'd be interested to get your view for her to be the accountability person. That puts her in the category of being the scold, yes. of yeah. being his superego. Nobody wants to and be the cop in a relationship. It's not sexy. No. It, it's putting you in a zone where you're the buzzkill. You're the, the superego. And you need to have a long-term relationship with somebody professionally who will help you work through this. And this guy is not saying that. He's saying just the opposite. I'll figure it out. Just check back. And each time that's not been what happens. And she's picked up on that. Unsure, you've figured it out. He's not serious about it yet. Oftentimes, a romantic partner, like you were saying, is not the best accountability partner. Yeah. Because an addict doesn't want to make his partner feel betrayed. So he'll just hide it. He'll continue to hide it. If you have some, he doesn't have to tell the world like I did, but it really helps if he can tell a therapist or some friends mm -hmm. and have them on his team 
And there's software out there, Covenant Eyes, that he can install on his devices, and it won't block porn necessarily, but it will send a report of his activity to his accountability partner, like a friend. Oh, interesting. And then that friend can see, oh, there's some flag searches here. I need to talk with my friend about this. Mm. Wow. Noah, I'm curious about, you know, what, what a lot of people would call just kind of normal porn use uh yeah. not the not the people who are saying like they're they're addicts last week on part one you know steve talked about his occasional use of porn mm-hmm. um we had a letter from a man in his 50s who's like i'm i'm happily married my relationship with my wife is great and i use porn online porn three times a week is that mm-hmm. a problem like you know he's obviously a little bit concerned he's asking us that question but i want to know what, what's your perspective on that is any porn use uh, is all porn use destructive I'm really glad you asked that because, yes, absolutely, there are people out there who use a little bit uh, in moderation, and they're in healthy, happy relationships. They Mm -hmm. have good lives. We know about 85% of young guys and 31% of young women use porn regularly. 31% of women? About a third of visitors to porn sites are women. That surprises me. Yes. That surprises surprises most people because society views this as a male issue. And that can actually make it very much harder for women who are also struggling with this addiction. Sure. Because they feel like they're freaks, they're outcasts, this is just a male problem, and there's no one out there to help me. Another uh, set of statistics, so back in 2002, studies were showing us that young guys, 18 to 40, ED rates for them were about 2 to 5%. Erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Okay. Erectile dysfunction. What, what percent? 42? No, 2, two to 5. 2 to 5, okay. Yeah, two Sorry. To five. <laughs> now, in 2015, or it's 2016 now, but by 2015, studies were showing us that ED rates for guys 18 to 40 are now about 27 to 33%. Dang. Wow. And about one in four new patients who go to a doctor to seek Cialis or help with their erectile dysfunction are young guys <laughs> under 40 years old. Yeah, I have read that, that it's a young, it's become this young man's, it used to be just, you know, really mm-hmm. health, like you said, a health problem usually in older men. Right. So porn doesn't always destroy lives, but there are a lot of people out there for whom it does cause problems. And for people who have self-identified as an addict or have developed to do symptoms like erectile dysfunction, it sounds like he's struggling with that in this relationship, mm-hmm. then you have reached the level, in my strong opinion, where porn is absolutely incompatible with a happy relationship. Well, right. And, you know, it's kind of like the old, I mean, one of the definitions of addiction I've heard when it comes to people who are using alcohol, for example, like, you know, am I an alcoholic or not when they're asking that question? Yeah. And one of the, the questions to ask is like, is it bringing about negative consequences in your life? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in the case of unsure, she's not sure she wants to marry this guy. You know, yeah. he's having negative consequences and unsure. We're telling you, you know, it's not just in your head. It's <laughs> this is a real problem in your relationship. Mm-hmm. You do not trust your partner. Your partner is not really taking your concerns seriously or his own problems very seriously. And, you know, my advice to you is hit the pause button. It doesn't mean the relationship's over, but, you know, you want a partner with whom you have a baseline of trust and sincerity and and more than mediocre sex, too. I'll just I'm just going to throw that in there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's you know, sex is an important part of a marriage. And, 
you know, it's it's you're you're really starting off pretty poorly if you're having mediocre sex from the beginning. That's probably caused by somebody's porn addiction. Right. So yeah. Take that seriously. Yeah. I mean, geez, boy, you think about the the early days of a relationship. No, and scorching it's like, hot. Oh God, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's what you. That's what that's I pine for. for. Yeah. Exactly. Or, no pun intended. <laughs> Never is with you. All right. I'd like to add one positive and hopeful thing, which yeah. is if you two are able to break through these barriers and heal together truly then you can have a relationship that's closer and more beautiful and more satisfying than you've ever had together before. Yeah. That is so true. Noah, you're proof of that. I mean, you yeah. came out the other side and, and, and you finally got to experience what it was like. I right? never knew that relationships or sex could be at this level that I experienced them at now. Yeah. Well, wow. thank you. You know, thanks for offering that insight. What a great guest you've been. We yeah. really appreciate thank you, you coming so much. In. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure being here. Absolutely. Oh, you've been great. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Wow, Noah was amazing. Yeah, I know I say that about all of our guests, but I really, I I, I do feel like this is an issue that it's like new territory for me. Uh, You know, I've, as I said at the outset, like I, it's one of those things where I don't even know what quite to think about it. So it's been really helpful to yeah. talk to somebody who has thought about it so much. It's fascinating. If you think about it in, in a, a large scale way, porn is this thing that happens privately and we sort of ignore it. So I hope we'll continue to get letters from people, reactions to this episode, and that people will spend a little bit of time checking out the websites and articles of both Wendy Maltz and Noah Church as well, um, and all the other people who are trying to say, look, when you see that there is this thing that is so powerful to so many men and women, it turns out, it has deep meaning. It's not something you can just hide away and expect to not arise within your relationships. We're, we're at a moment where it's coming up more and more. It's mm-hmm. not going to go away until we really bring it into the light and start to talk about and it. And that's what we're all about here at Dish Sugar mm-hmm. Radio, bringing it into the light. Bring it into the light, getting the pool boy. Well, I, I've never even met a pool boy, I don't <laughs> think, but hey, constantly. he's there. But if you do, careful. Time to read the credits. Watch out. All right, <laughs> here we go. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Amory Sievertson. We're recording at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Josh Melman is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Vocals are by Liz Weiss. Mm-hmm. Subscribe to Dear Sugar on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Dear Sugar Radio. Please also write us your letters. We yeah. want to know all your secrets and sorrows and struggles and conundrums. Dear Sugar Radio at gmail.com. 
If you want to hear more stories dealing with matters of the heart, listen to Modern Love, the podcast. We think of ourselves as like the touchy-feely, go-deep, radical empathy kind of podcast, but we're not the only player in town. We're not the only cat in this bar. There's also Modern Love. It's people going deep into story about something that they are struggling with, some love relationship. And that's kind of like the terrain that we're covering as well. They have one central story, usually some amazing actor or celebrity or even writer like Cheryl Strait reading that story, and then it's beautifully put together. The, the, the sound engineering of it is awesome. It's a partnership between WBOR, Boston's NPR station, and the New York Times. You can tune in every week. And how would they do that, Cheryl? By subscribing to Modern Love on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.